First Peter 1.22-2.3 Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again not to perishable seed but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. To put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of God. G.K. Chesterton wrote, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. It's interesting, the difficulty of Christianity uh, is actually part of its appeal. Jesus' standard is quite high. What he calls us to is not easy, but it's very good. And yet how we engage with him and his message is, is various. Uh, anyone, whether it's somebody trying to figure out what Christianity is about and whether to become a Christian or somebody struggling along to grow in Christianity, will always find there are things that are hard to understand. And eventually you reach the point that you realize, well, if Jesus is talking about things so wonderful and wise, of course I would naturally understand them. So uh, patience is part of listening to the teaching of Jesus. There's always going to be something about his teaching that provokes us. If he's calling us to change, there's going to be something natural to how we think and who we are that may be prone to getting offended. But again, the question is, is he good? Is he credible? Um, is it corrective? And typically what is found out is the more you examine him, um, the more he's trustworthy. But the difficulty of, of his teaching, where you read it, and, and it should stir in us both a desire to say, this is what I want. I, I want to be this kind of person. I'm going to live this way. I want to do these things. And I wish that others were like this. If we were all paying attention to Jesus, this way of life, what a radically different people we would be. And so on the one hand, the high standard makes it appealing. But then as you try to do it, the difficulty of it um, causes different kinds of responses in us. You know, most of us don't like things that are, are too hard, too sacrificial. We don't like functioning out of a sense of our own competence. And so to live up to this high standards provokes the deepest uh, vulnerability points of our own shame, our own perfectionism, these various things. So at some point, the unappealing things about Christianity are not maybe the obvious hard questions, but they come in the other way that it's just hard enough to do it that as we're discouraged, our normal defense mechanisms uh, arise when you don't like uh, the feeling of, of, of shame or feeling like you're failing or feeling like you're outside of your comfort zone you respond by quitting or by insulting or by shifting blame or any of the things that any of us do in the various ways and so at some point in the Christian life Jesus's high standard will provoke in us the desire to give up and to say that it's his fault or the fault of his followers or the fault of something and uh, it's this tension of realizing that, look, if it was easy, if it was natural to us, it wouldn't change us, it wouldn't be good. What's natural to us, uh, see how that plays out in the world. The passage today that we're looking at is a reminder that 
Um, what makes Jesus different is he's not here just to, to add some encouragement, but he's here to do something transformative. And one of the biggest criticisms he has is against hypocrisy. And actually, how do we do better than hypocrisy? Nobody likes hypocrisy, but what's the alternative? You know, I look at my own heart and my own desires, and I'm impatient. I have negative thoughts about people. I want to say things that I know are just spiteful and insulting. And I'm going to choose not to say them because I know that they're wrong, and so I'm going to try to act in the best way that I can. Well, that's hypocrisy. <laughs> Should I be authentic? Should I be authentic to myself and my desires? The problem is if we were all authentic, uh, we would, uh, World War III would consume us. And so is there an alternative to hypocrisy? Instinctively, we know hypocrisy is not the way because we wind up burying these thoughts until they come out in some explosion. Jesus talks about a transformation that doesn't begin from the outside and work its way in, but it begins from the inside and eventually works its way out. And he invites us into that. And if you're really tracking with that, uh, by faith, through his grace, if you're really surrounding yourself with not just the specific teachings, but the whole of Jesus' invitation to follow him, you find that, yeah, it may be hard, but it's good, that there's actual growth and progress. And so in the passage today, verse 22 says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's what makes it difficult. Love one another, great, let's do it. From a pure heart. Ah, well, pure in what way? <laughs> Uh, from the heart, does that mean I need to feel good feelings about everyone? What happens if I'm angry with someone? It's that that we have to grapple to grow. How do we actually become the kinds of people who don't grow in hypocrisy the more we try to improve ourselves, but we're actually growing in the peace of Christ? It's not easy, but today I want to talk about three things, a new possibility, the old probability, and a better reality. I'm gonna begin with the new possibility. When Jesus comes and teaches us, many people read it and say, actually what he's really doing is he's showing every one of us how far we fall short. He's, he's setting a standard that no one could live to so that we'll admit we need forgiveness. And functionally that's true, he's certainly doing that. Um, but I don't know, is that actually his primary intention? Is he saying this is how you are to live so that you can feel miserable so that way he could offer um, some comfort to you? I think functionally it happens because he says this is how God made you to live. And of course the natural response when you do it and you look around is to say who of us can do it? And it puts us in a very humbled place where then we think we need forgiveness, we need help, we need patience. But that's also part of Jesus' message. But the message is if those things are there, if his grace is there, then actually you can grow in these ways. They're not just there as a lesson to humble you, but, but they're there for you. There's a possibility that you could be better than who you are now. You could be better than who you once were. You really can grow, um, but it's not gonna be easy. And so it, it, uh, this message about love from a pure heart, when he's talking about love here, he's talking about something that in itself all of us know enough about love that instinctively we recognize he's talking about something valuable. But he's also talking about something different enough that we're prone to misunderstanding. When I was, I became a Christian as an adult. And as a fairly new Christian, first of all, when I was a non-Christian, the message, Jesus loves you, I didn't necessarily have a problem with it. It, it just felt no power to me. 
Uh, and then even as a fairly new Christian, hearing about the love of God, there were just other things, other terms, other concepts that I was drawn to myself. Um, and at some point I realized, because Jesus talks about the law being fulfilled with love God, love neighbor, that love is really important. And I look back and I wonder, why was it that I was not drawn? Why was I not seized by that? And I think in my own case, is I think I just developed a, a view of love that was, as it was defined by the culture or I, as I perceived it when I was growing up that had more sort of touchy-feely, emotional kind of um, uh, uh, romantic kind of tones. And so when I heard that Jesus loves you, I thought that it was sort of a Valentine's Day kind of message. Nice, but, um, but if I'm looking for substance in life, uh, that wasn't compelling to me. To me, Christianity felt like the genre where it belonged was romantic comedy. And some of you would say, yes, that's what I love about it. <laughs> that's fine. I'm not against romantic comedy. Um, sometimes it's exactly what I need. A good romantic comedy is wonderful. But um, the genres that I'm drawn to more are, are things like drama. <laughs> um, and so Christianity that felt like it was just a big Valentine's Day festival that you were invited to, it, it just didn't compel me. I misunderstood the message that Jesus has loved you. Now, I think, oh my goodness, if, I, if only I could have more of this love of Jesus, more belief in it, more experience of it. I realize it was so profound, but it's taken years of maturing. I don't know for you, maybe for some of you, um, know, hearing that God loves you is exactly what you need. That's the most compelling thing that just the word of it touches your soul. That's what you're looking for. If you are, that's right, that's good. Some of us just connect with other areas. But whatever it is, however your entryway in, whatever's compelling, where Jesus is gonna cause us to grow is to understand what love actually is. And, and it may be a corrective or it could be an expansion. Maybe you've, you're holding on to something of love that's true, but it's, it's just limited. So the romantic component, it's not entirely wrong, um, but it, it's certainly not all that there is, and the love of God is different. So um, when we're talking about the love that Jesus announces from God that we're invited into that then should fill and change us and send us out, Jesus is talking about something of a different quality than what's natural to us or what we see. Even in the best case scenarios, people who grew up in loving families or people who have friends that really have loved them well, there's something in that instructive that's instructive, but look at what Jesus, read Matthew 5, for example, when he talks about the nature of his followers, he talks about the love of God who causes the sun to rise on the righteous and the unrighteous. There's a generosity that's uncalculated, not like, well, how could I move all my people to this region so that the sun shines on them and I'm going to leave all the people I don't like in the cloudy area. God is going to pour out his blessing. And those who don't deserve it and don't appreciate it will uh, get it, uh, but some will recognize it and appreciate it. The nature of his love, he says, human beings, we do love. We love our family members because there's this weird obligation that we have relationally. And so you will make certain commitments and sacrifices for family members. You love people who cause delight, that you resonate with, that you find attractive. Any of these categories, human beings will do that and we will love sacrificially. We recognize that's something rich and valuable, that we will do costly things in love when it's clear that the sacrifice is worthwhile. 
you know, it's when the person that we're sacrificing ourselves for appreciates it and thanks us. It's worth it. Or if the person we're sacrificing ourselves for benefits, I am going to experience great loss to take some satisfaction in the gain for this other person. That's profound, that's deep, but that's not utterly remarkable. We'll do that. It's rare, but we'll do it. Jesus talks about a love that's different. So his question in Matthew 5 is, how are you different from others? Because lots of people love their family members. Lots of people will love somebody who in some way will love them back. But he says, look at the love of God who loves those who don't thank him, who aren't deserving, who don't add any value to him and what he's doing. And yet he sets his love on them. <clears throat> you are not to be like the people around you because their influence on you is not simply shaping you, but it's distorting you. You are to be like God who's very different. And when, when that encounter happens, then you're experiencing something that is not up from the world, but something that comes into the world from the outside. It's that love that will transform. And so I want to say two things here. One is this is the love that you want. What I mean by that is what we want in our human relationships is people who will delight in us, people who will be generous, people who will sacrifice. But in most of us, there's something inside that's keeping us from being ourselves because of some kind of fear or some kind of issue. Look, we're all, we're all different. But there's something that keeps us feeling like I could just be who I am. Certainly in the workplace, in school, wherever you go, but even at home with a spouse, with a father, with a sibling, with a roommate. Can you, can you be who you are so somebody knows exactly how you think, what you want, all of your mistakes? Most of us have, we, we, we put things into a bit of a corner because the sense is everything I've observed in life is that there is a line where love does not cross. At some point, if anyone sees this, they're going to leave, they're going to give up, they're going to withdraw, they're going to, in a pitiful way, still care for me, but in a way that's shameful. We don't have a confidence that there is such a thorough love that's not an enabling love, not somebody who's ignoring things, but somebody who is truly, deeply loving. Where are the examples of it? And as Christians were saying, the example is in Christ. That's where it is. It's that love that we want that first allows us to be our authentic selves. We don't know who we really are because we're overwhelmed by our fear, by our sin. We have different terminology for it, but all of us would recognize I don't know that I could say exactly what I'm thinking, that I could be who I am, that I could tell my story 100% and have confidence I'm not going to wind up alone. So I'm going, to, I'm going to be very careful on what I portray and what I hold back. As long as we're doing that, we are limiting community. We are limiting interaction. We're limiting growth. So when Peter says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, he's talking about uh, something that we desperately want, but we don't have the belief can actually exist, and so we want it. But here's the second thing is, not only do you want it for you, but you want to do it. So all of us wants to know that we're okay enough, that somebody will stay with us and, and bear with us and uh, <clears throat> work with us and help us and delight with us. But there's something about the experience of loving that actually sometimes is, is better than being loved. You know, and, and you experience it when there's delight, when, when there's somebody that you, that you just... 
for whatever reason, whether you think they're beautiful or you think they're wonderful and you're, or you just enjoy who they are, there's something about that experience that then satisfies the soul. It's not that I'm being loved, but the, the feeling of loving somebody. And even sacrificial love, it, it could be hard, it could be a discipline, we may do some grumbling and complaining, but there's something satisfying about saying, but this suffering's not in vain, I'm doing this for someone else. Um, you know, none of us likes to suffer, but if we can choose between suffering with no meaning and suffering, uh, no suffering, no meaning, and suffering with meaning, I think most of us would find that actually a little bit of suffering, if it makes me have confidence that who I am is worthwhile, that, that this world means something, then we're willing to do it. It's the kind of love we want, except this earnest love from our heart. We burn out, we tire, we lose confidence it's worthwhile, that it's being recognized. And we want it, but, but none of us is able to go the distance. So Jesus offers this new possibility and so when Peter writes to a group of Christians and says, now, you have this brotherly love, uh, so it's a different word there, the word that we get, Philadelphia. It's great to have a city or a cream cheese that you can share with people. Uh, lots of uses for that Greek word, Philadelphia, brotherly love. He says, look, you have this brotherly love, but there should be an agape. Uh, that's a Greek word that in the Bible often is used to signal the kind of love that, that makes God's love distinct. And... And that kind of profound, deep love that comes from who God is rather than God's response to who we are is that love that actually provides the kind of grace that, that can be transformative. So there's a new possibility. But now I want to talk about the second thing, the old probability. So a new possibility. Now the next section, the old probability. What are the chances that you will be so inspired that you'll do this? <laughs> what is the probability that the forces at work in your heart and the dynamics around you will allow you to love earnestly from a pure heart. And that's where uh, a bit of statistics work here is very discouraging. The chances are not good. We, we will go back to our old ways. We will fail. We will go sometimes more than we ever thought we could. Um, but it's just too hard. And, and, and you should be trying. The reason that grace is important in the Christian life is because you should keep trying and trying even if you're failing, but grace allows you to keep going. Whereas apart from grace, the probability uh, basically says you will not succeed. And so uh, in, in going into chapter two now, chapter two is really where we're going next week, so I'm not going to say a lot about those first three verses, but I want to include it in today's um, uh, message because there is a contrast here in verse one of chapter two. You know, he's telling us what we should do. Love earnestly from a pure heart. Now, chapter 2, verse 1. So, put away all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. And the word all there. He's not saying, put some of it away for now. You could leave somehow. He's basically saying, it would be like saying there's no room in the Christian life. It's, you know, that junk drawer... When you always think, ah, maybe I'll, I'll need it someday. I need it someday, go out and buy it again. It costs 59 cents. For now, get rid of it because you have things you want that have no room. So do we want this pure heart? Do we want this thorough love? Uh, the picture is kind of God is going to pour this into you, but, but, but there's not a lot of space because we're holding on to these things. And so Peter's saying, put them away. 
What is malice doing in your life? What is deceit doing? What is hypocrisy? What is envy? What is slander? This is not a comprehensive list. Oh boy, could you imagine that there's more? Isn't this enough? Um, all of us have the seeds of these things. I mean, take envy. How, much of the, how many of the world's problems are simply because we don't like people that have it better than us? We don't like people who are more talented. We don't like people that are more good-looking. Isn't it wonderful when somebody's good-looking, you get to look at them and enjoy them? <laughs> ah, but I want somebody to look at me and give me the benefits. And so there's something in all of us that keeps us from that consistent generosity, that thorough love, that's a, that's a response. It's, there's something wrong in us. And, and Paul, uh, Peter, who's writing this, says, put it away thoroughly. Now, look, we have to have the expectation that becoming a Christian doesn't instantly make you perfect. But it's that process to say, here's what you need to be filled with. But here's what you need to let go of. Um, at least once a year, I'm in California. My wife's family is there. And we typically go in the summer. We used to go on Thanksgiving and Christmas. In the summer, many parts of the, the state, it's very hot and it's very dry. So you usually wind up having to plan your vacation to some degree around fires. This summer, we were gonna drive from California to Washington and we couldn't go through Oregon because of, you know, not just a little fire, but, but smoke so thick that you couldn't drive through it. Um, what causes the fires and I always heard about lightning and, you know, you're in this beautiful nature and there must be all these natural things because that's the, w the way nature works. I read a statistic. I didn't research this, so if it's wrong, um, I'm not positive on this. But the statistic was that 95% of fires in California are of human origin. So some of them are intentional. Arson. That's not most common, but that happens. A lot of it is unintentional. So in 2020, there was fireworks at a gender reveal party. Set a huge fire, the lesson, don't have gender reveal parties, they're dangerous. <laughs> it could be campers who, you know, you think you put the fire out or, you, you know, whatever the case is and, and fires begin. So there's the, the accidental careless kind of fire. But there's also fires that actually you know, you can't plan for, you, you can't control, but they're still of human origin, like electrical failure. I mean, the, the fact that we can use electricity is a marvel, and so it's great that we're able to, um, to provide electricity, but occasionally um, there's a problem. <clears throat> and electrical failure is, is another factor, because with a fire, all you need is a spark. And so in California, why, why does a small fire quickly grow. Well, part of it is the context. It's not just what starts the fire, but it's the dry, hot context. And so Peter talks about the things in our hearts that, that cause little fires, our deceit, our malice, our hypocrisy. And look, if you're in a healthy relationship, you could get away with your imperfections. You envy, and then you have to come out and admit it, and you could apologize, and it causes some problems, and you have an argument, and you have extra stress for a couple of weeks, and then you have to buy some sort of gift and, and make some negotiation. That happens. But when the context is, when, when you start to dry out, when, um, when things get a bit heated, then all it takes is a little malice, just a little bit of slander. What will a little slander do? Well, in the wrong context, slander will, it's just a little spark. I'm not a terrible person. There's just a little, it would just feel so relieving to let this out. Is there anyone that could allow me to vent 
and say this thing that I know I shouldn't say, you know you shouldn't hear, but can we just say it and get it out there? A lot of times that's good. I'm glad it's out there. But sometimes it starts a fire, and the fire spreads. And you look at this last year and a half. How do we deal with the threat of a shortage on toilet paper? How do we deal with, um, you know, now you're, uh, a lot of the things that you did for enjoyment you can't do? How do we deal with COVID? Well, we still rose and uh, showed some of the best of what humanity can do, but we got a bit tired. <laughs> and then anything that we talked about became intense and overwhelming. Were we different people? Did all of a sudden we become malicious and greedy and slanderous? Well, we just became a bit more tired, and so the same malice that's always been working under the radar just had a more dangerous impact. Why is it so important to not allow these to have influence in our, in our hearts and in our lives? Because they all have a trajectory, and the end is death. That's one of the things that Peter is talking about here. He's talking about a difference between death and life. He's talking about human beings as we are born into the world, that there's this inevitability that, that the end, no matter how well or how terribly you live, no matter how much you accomplish or how little you accomplish, at the end of the day, the grave awaits us all. And so, how much effort do we want to have in pushing back? Is it really worth killing ourselves? Shouldn't we just draw the line somewhere and enjoy ourselves, allow just a, a little bit of our envy to, to function because it motivates us? And what Peter is saying is, is but, but actually, um, you have a new understanding. <laughs> the grave is not the end. Isn't that good news? Doesn't mean that what you do now matters um, and that your life is valuable and the standard is not whether you're successful or not successful, but it's a whole different way of thinking that's life-giving. So step out of this old paradigm where we're desperate, where we mistreat one another, where we feel like unless I could satisfy my craving, I'll be dissatisfied, so I'll get it out and let somebody else deal with it. And Peter's saying there's just not room for that in your heart, in God's community, in our people as we go out into the world. And so, this contrast in verse 23, there's perishable seed. In verse 24, all flesh is like grass. He's quoting Isaiah 40. So if you go back to the earlier verses that Peter talks about, the prophets who, filled with the Holy Spirit, inquired carefully to what God would someday do. They believed in God's goodness, God's redemption. They just didn't know how it was going to come and when. Peter says, the apostles who live in our day now announce this message about Jesus who came to fulfill the prophets. And now, what's announced is life. There's a contrast, but what's it contrasted with? It's a life that's like grass. What's wrong with grass? Nothing. Grass is wonderful. It's beautiful. Flowers are great to look at. It's comfortable to sit on on a warm day. You could put it in your juicer and drink it if you want some extra greens in your life. There's nothing wrong with grass. The issue with grass is it's here and it's gone. So what's wrong with us? Is there anything wrong with us? No. Being a human is great. But it's that futility that arises from our, our coming and going that then creates the context that inevitably, what's the probability you're going to rise above that? As long as there's envy in our hearts, there's malice, there's deceit, there's hypocrisy, the forces are always going to pull you back. Don't bother. Don't. Why strive to be better? And so Peter comes and says, actually, I could tell you why. There's a good reason. Um, there is a contrast to what's perishable. And so that's what I'm going to talk about next. But let me just finish uh, the second point, talking about the old probability, the old self. 
the reality that unless there's something transformative, unless a work comes into our lives to bring us a change and to draw us out, then inevitably we're going to be ruled by our hypocrisy, slander, malice, envy, these various things. And so, so one of the reasons that change is so hard, one of the reasons Peter, when he writes what we've been looking at the last six or so weeks, he's writing to people who have a new identity, a new community, a new understanding of life, a, a new way of perceiving reality. It's a package that comes together because the call to change is remarkably hard. You know, we're emotionally complex beings, for example, and our emotions are part of who we are. R rightly so, uh, our emotions are good, but we get stuck because we will, we will get tied to something, to something regretful, to something that angers us, to something that humiliates us, whatever it is. And there's this tension, we want to change, we want to be free of it. But again, we want to go into the world confident of who we are, and we've learned to, there's a maladaptation, we've learned to adopt to the world based on how the world is dysfunctional and how we're mistreated. So that the only way we know to go into the world is with our defense mechanism. So I say, you say, I want to be free of this pain. And I'm taking whatever steps I can practically. But underneath it, there's this sense in which I don't want to be this person in pain. But to let go of the pain is to, to let go of all I know of myself to be. And so what the alternative is to be a person in pain or to be nothing. And, and so any moral call that says you can be better is inspiring because it always shows what we want, but it presents an impossibility because we're not courageous enough. <laughs> we're, we're not bold enough. We're not willing to step out and be uncomfortable and relearn. And so we go back down. Peter says, the things that you need to make that step, Jesus provides. And therefore, it's not that he has a moral standard that you could live up to, but, but he will come into your life in a way that that you can say, I may not know anything other than me as an envious, bitter person, but I could, by faith, start to believe that a new me is possible. And I could let go, not simply of pain, but, but let go of an old way of relating to the world that over time you find, and the pain starts to lessen. That's part of the, the growth of grace that comes with Christianity. So here's the the last thing that I want to talk about is a better reality. Jesus comes to, to bring something real, something that's more real than our envy and our bitterness and the world and its brokenness that we know. And it has a foundation in something new. And so, so the reason Peter now is calling us to this high standard, rather than verse 1 saying, hey, this is Peter, love one another, and then I've got some theological things to say. He opens the letter talking about Jesus. Do you understand who he is and what he did? And then he moves to us. And in verse 23, it says, since you have been born again, this is the reason. He's not saying love from a pure heart because it's really the better way to live. He's saying, have you understood how Jesus has come into your life? If you have, then something new has begun. Since that has happened, love one another from a pure heart. And it's, it's, uh, it's verse 22, having purified your souls, love one another from a pure heart. There's something that happens first of which love then is the outworking, the response. And 
Where I'm going to focus my comments today is on the word, because that's where Peter brings us in this particular passage. There's lots that could be said about how to change, how to grow, how to experience love. Here, Peter talks about the word. So the contrast to perishable human beings is an eternal God. But how do we know what that God is like? Our God chooses to speak. He makes known himself and his ways, and so there's a verbal invitation that the Spirit gives to prophets, apostles, messengers. And the contrast with this word, the word that created in Genesis 1 and gave life, the word that gives new life, there's a word that he has, an invitation. And it's described in verse 23 as imperishable. We are like the grass, but God and his word are imperishable. The invitation to hear and to believe is to step out of a culture of death and hopelessness and into new life, to have a word uh, implanted in you that changes how you think and understand and believe and transforms you. Verse 23, it's imperishable. It's through the living and abiding word of God. This is the nature of God's message that was true 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago, today, and as long as there are, is time. God's eternal word is living and it's abiding. Do you want to remain? That's what abiding means. Do you want to go into the dust and be done? Or would you like to remain in some good and glorious way? Well, hear the invitation and respond and you are entering into something that's imperishable. You may have been like grass, but you can have this new birth into a life that is eternal. Uh, here's the second thing, verse 25. This word is the good news. So it goes on to say the word remains forever. So again, that eternal component. But the second thing I want to say about the word is it's good news. Um, do you recognize the goodness of the message, the word of God? It's remarkable how plainly um, we can speak and not understand and still resist, the word that God has for us is described as good news. Look, the Bible is a rich, complex book with lots of discouraging things, hard things to understand, hard things to hear. But what does it all add up to? It adds up to a testimony to what God would do in Jesus Christ. And we're told it's good news. And so we have to understand the entryway into Christianity is the invitation to something good. And the nature of the message, what's helpful, is the thing that often puts us off when we're doing sufficiently okay that we have confidence that we can do it with a little help or that we don't need help, is the irrelevant, the problem is the irrelevance of the message because the good news is not a message about me. And what do I care about religious people who lived a long time ago or, or those people out there? I'm concerned with me and my life what is this news? Is the news about me? Well, actually, it's a message about Jesus. Wonderful. Maybe I'll get to it when I have time. It's when we say, you know what, I actually want to be good. By some standard, I want to be morally good. I want to be the kind of good that people are glad to have me around. I want to be good at what I do, professionally or otherwise. I want to be good. It's when we give ourselves to that high calling, and you should. That's the calling of human beings. Be good in everything. It's in that striving for goodness that we start to see, wow, there are other people who are better. And there's me with 
the things that are keeping me from growing and changing in whatever sphere. I'm not able to, I'm not able to excel in my career because of this. I'm not able to excel morally because of this thing in my heart. It's then that we start to realize, boy, <laughs> I don't know that I want about a message about myself proclaimed just yet um, because I've got some things that I need to fix or hide before anyone starts talking about me. The reason the gospel is good news is it, becomes to, it comes to people in that reality, the people who are longing for goodness but losing confidence they can do it or that they qualify. It's then when God says the message is not about you and what you've done. And that's why it's good news. Because who you have been and what you've done is not the most fundamental thing. It's good because of who I am and what I've done. And so let's announce to you what Jesus Christ has come to say and do. And he calls us to love, even to the point of loving our enemies. Wow, what a teacher. He's not just a teacher. He's not a hypocrite. He came to love us, not to tell us that he loves us. He came to tell us because he's going to love us. And it's that sacrificial death for the undeserving, for those who are not thanking him, those who didn't earn it, those who can never really repay. That's the good news. This really exists. Why do we have trouble believing that? Why does it sound trite? There's something in us to say, my most, uh, the best way to assess reality is by what I see, what I've experienced, what I've learned. And therefore, there can't be love like this. And God would say, you're understanding reality wrong, and you're stuck. But I will show you a new way. I will change your reality. So Jesus comes from the outside into our lives. And so what he did by suffering on the cross in our place, the Spirit brings in space and time and plants its word deep in our hearts. So this language of seed, you know, agriculturally we could imagine planting a seed and what grows up from it, but human procreation, we plant seeds, life comes. He's saying, we're not trying to tend to a a dying tree here, but but there's a seed, God's word, his invitation to, to plant it deep within you, and it's gonna bring life, and then you didn't earn it, you can't make it grow, but you could, you could change the dynamic. You could get that deceit and that malice out of there so it can grow more quickly and more richly and be more visible. And so that word of grace that says it's good news, what's good about it? What's good is it's a message that's not about you, but it's a message for you. It has great relevance because it says now you can be good. Now you can have hope. Now what God has done in you can become who you are and how you behave in the world. And so it's transformative because it's hopeful. Is this possible? And here's the last thing I'll say about this word. Verse 22, the assumption is that the language is we've purified our souls by obedience to the truth. You know, we're very skeptical about obedience and truth because again, our experience in the world is hypocrites withhold their bad intentions, declare what they're doing is true, and then require you conform to it. So that's, that's what we see around us. And so anyone talking about truth and obedience, we want to run from. Is there one person that we can trust, that we could listen to? That's what the Bible presents, one person, Jesus Christ. Now he comes and declares the truth. And he's not a hypocrite. 
He's not withholding some secret thing that you'll find later on is regretful. How do you know? Where did it begin? He didn't have to lay down his life, but he did. He did that. Why would you not trust him now with the more basic things? So be bold. Believe the truth. Believe that if you follow him, he will take care of you. He will give you what you need. And so don't hold on to the malice and whatever you think it's doing in your life. Let go of the envy and how you feel like you need to hold on to it to just finish that one thing that you need to, to get done. Saying what's fundamentally true is this is a problem and you don't need to live this way. And so believe what I have done on your behalf. Believe that you are okay in me and believe that my ways are right and then courageously do them. And so go into the world with that new life. Um, you know, this change in identity, this change in understanding the world, it's a whole package. The package comes from our remembering that it comes into our lives through this message about Jesus. And then we go out and we practice. What does it look like to learn to function in, in the world in a new way? But that whole context, that whole new life, that whole new hope, that whole new reality is the foundation for us to experiment with what does it look like to love deeply, truly, sincerely, from a pure heart. It takes risk, it takes vulnerability. But if we're growing in security of who we are in Christ, if we believe the truth that Jesus' ways, they may not be effective in the short term, but they're right, I can, I can do them. It may be costly, but I'm gonna believe that if I do this, it will lead to a better life. I'm gonna trust him in that. That creates the context where then you're no longer pulled down. <clears throat> I know a woman who is a, who is a physician, but I remember her telling me when uh, she had a period between graduating medical school and her residency. It was a month, I forget how long it was, but she, um, whatever her circumstances were, she decided that she was gonna sign up with a temp agency and just work. I think there was a relief of just having some kind of work that wouldn't be overly taxing to the brain and just making a little bit of money and having something to do. I'm not sure why she did it. She signed up with a temp agency thinking, you know, some temporary work that you'll work in, you know, just fill in for somebody who's on vacation where you could just show up without knowing anything about the workplace, do some simple but necessary things, and then be done with it. Now, because of her medical school background, I'm guessing, they placed her in a hospital. So they didn't place her uh, doing anything medical. They placed her in some um, administrative department in a hospital. So she went to work there, and she was only going to be there for a few weeks. And so the people there weren't really interested in getting to know her. And this particular group... Uh, the way she experienced it was it was an unhealthy group of people. They were not kind. And she went in, and they didn't ask, who she, uh, ask her about her life. They gave her things to do, and they seemed to have made this assumption that as a temp, she's somebody who maybe couldn't get or keep a real job. Um, and so uh, here she is. The things that nobody wants to do, we're just going to dump on her. And she felt the whole time she was there that they looked down on her. Now, what a terrible experience it shows us about the problems of living in a workplace uh, or working in a workplace that's negative. It shows the arrogance of the human heart that we quickly assess people without getting to know them, the folly that actually she has the credentials um, to do very significant and meaningful things in a hospital, but you never asked her that. But, but she didn't go home every night crying <laughs> because she wasn't afraid that if she didn't perform, she would get fired. She didn't think it was open-ended. This would be the reality for the rest of her life. She had the confidence to know that anyone that was looking down on her was looking down on her in ignorance. And so her situation is unlike most of ours, that she was able to go into the workplace, into an unhealthy environment, and yes, she was affected by it. She went home annoyed. She was discouraged about life. I'm sure it had an effect on her. She couldn't have done it six months or a year. 
But that fixed period of going in and saying, hey, this is a hospital, and I'm actually going to be wearing a white coat that says doctor in a month, and you're uh, yelling at me because you're, you, you're afraid I'm going to mess up your lunch order. She was able to be unaffected by that because she knew what they didn't know. Peter is writing to people and he's saying, go out and love deeply from a true heart. But he's also saying, the world is not going to thank you for this. They're not going to encourage you. They're not going to say, what a wonderful group of people. What a changed human being. This, this person that I grew up with, wow, something's different. Peter says, you don't want to be shaped by how others treat you or what others think of you. You want to look up and be shaped by how God thinks of you and how God has treated you. And if you could do that, if you could ground yourself in a God who loves because it's who he is, it actually frees us of letting go and saying, but there's got to be something in me that God liked. Yeah, sure. But that's not why he loved you. <laughs> it's freeing to be like, I could let go of that. I could let go of my great things. I could let go of my terrible things. I could just, I could be who I am in Christ because God is, is growing and molding me to this new reality. And then we could go into the world with vulnerability and we could take the risks of loving and failing and repenting and apologizing. And it creates a life not that we don't suffer, but that it's not impossible, that you can be different in the world. And so it's not something that's natural to who you are, it's supernatural to what God is doing. But do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus speaks the truth? Um, are you connecting with that life-giving reality? Well, then you can go back this week and you can try <laughs> for the greatest, most generous, kind things ever. And if it doesn't work, we'll be here next Sunday. Come and Confess your sins, pray to God for grace, and then we're going to try it again. We can really do this. We're never going to be perfect like Jesus, but Jesus is at work in us, and so we can be better than who we were last week. So let's give thanks for that. Let's pray. Our Father, um, boy, we want to grow, and boy, we are stubborn. Some of us are so tired of all the things that we've tried that, uh, that maybe we just want to accept ourselves as we are and... And, and aim low. Lord, we don't want to be disappointed. I pray that nobody here would set themselves up for some, some self-ambitious some self and fueled goal that would lead to disappointment. Lord, we want with humility to understand your grace, that there really is a better way, that there really is the truth of a message, that there is a love that is deep and profound that can change us. And so help us wherever we're struggling to believe it, struggling to do it, and Lord, wherever we're holding on to our envy and our bitterness and our malice and our spite and our hypocrisy, oh Lord, free us. Help us take that from us, uh, but replace it. Don't leave us empty, but fill us with your spirit that your grace would be sufficient. Give us the strength to do it this week uh, and help us to really learn, help us to really grow. Uh, help us together to be that kind of church and help us to go from this church to be those kinds of people wherever you send us. Help us to show the love of Christ in a true and uh, radical way, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.